Talk Show. Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Europe. Today is Sunday, August 2nd, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Today, Sven Longshanks and I are going to, to um, attempt to pr- present what appears to be a pattern throughout history that every time the British Isles are invaded and conquered or overrun, it, it is always because of treachery on the part of the rulers and, and leaders of Britain at the time. And, and this is a pattern from the days of the Roman Caesars through, through the um, post-Roman British king, that the um, Anglo-Saxons and the invasion of, of the Normans, right on to the immigration problem that England, the crisis that England currently faces, along with America and the rest of Europe. But it seems that um, as England goes, so may the white world. It is once again due to the treachery of politicians and chieftains. And, and it always seems to be through um, the allegiances of certain Britons with people on the continent, with, with the worldly ruling powers of the continent. And on that note, we will begin with Sven Longshanks. Hello, Sven. Thank you for joining me. Hello, Bill. Um... Yeah, I, there's sort of two things I think we should really cover to start off with is I think people just don't, the British people don't really seem to know our history like we used to. I mean, British schoolboys used to be able to recite the speech of Caractacus, who was taken in chains to the Roman Senate, and they used to be able to recite that, but I don't think most British schoolboys nowadays would even know who Caractacus was or know his original name that, that was Caradoc. Now, um, I got started on this um, on this sort of quest. Somebody mentioned to me, I think it might have been Martin, he said, I should have a look at Alan Wilson and Baron Blackett's work. And they're, they're two secular historians. Uh, they're not Christian identity historians, but they have confirmed most of what Christian identity talks about as far as the early church, and they've expanded on it as well um, on the history of what actually happened in Britain. And they also talk about the reasons why the British history got changed and and why it got taken from them. And I think if people actually knew more about their history, they wouldn't be so frightened to call it an invasion, what we're seeing today. I mean, just just this week we've had... um, these Negroes bursting through the Channel Tunnel and saying things like, we're, we're coming because we want to claim our human right, as if it's a lottery prize that they're coming to claim. We're coming to claim our human right, and we can claim it in whatever country we want. Now, they really feel that they're entitled to just invade Britain, and nobody's putting up um, nobody's putting up a fight against it. Most of the British people think that they're uh, you know that they, they, the land has been in, in, people have immigrated to the land or emigrated to the land throughout history, through, throughout time, and it's just not true. And, and the British people think that 
you know, a lot of us think that we were just savages and, and we didn't have anything until the Romans came and uh, the Romans built everything. It's even got so bad that they've renamed things as being Roman that were, that were actually built by the British people. And uh, things like um, the crosses that have got, uh, you can see, because they've got Ogham writing on them, as well as Latin writing, you can see that they must be 3rd or 4th century, but they'll label them as being 6th century because, of course, it wasn't until the 6th century that Augustine came to this land. Just like, just like today that where uh, they are falsifying the history of World War II, they, they falsified the British history right the way, right the way through, from the Anglo-Saxons did it to the, the Normans did it, and uh, right up to today where the EU is doing it and, and the Jewish media are doing it. And, and as you were saying right then at, at the beginning, all of this has come about through these various traitors. And we used to know the names of the traitors. We used to have the three blackest traitors in the history of the island of Britain. And people used to remember the names of these things, you know, they used to remember the names of these traitors. Uh, Arvarui was, was the first one. Uh, Cartis Mandua was the second one. And Vortigern was the, was the third one. And each one of these, these um, kings, or one of them was a queen, sold out the country to alien invaders. And each, each one of them, at the time, there were other white nations that were invading. And what we've got today is, is our, aristoc our aristocracy or our politicians have sold us out to the Jews who have now sold us out to the third world and are bringing the third world in, which, which is something that, um, you know, if they start replacing us, we... There's really not a lot we can do about it once, you, once your blood has been mixed and once you've been replaced by these people. We're not going to have enough people to, to fight back as it is. I don't know if you want to add anything there, Bill, or, or, or I mean, I can explain some about how the history got changed in the first place. Well, well internationalism, and, and this is one thing to learn from others, internationalism ha has always been with us. It was the nature of the Roman Empire. And, and it was through these internationalist ideas and, and, and tendencies, all based around trade, that, that, um, that we always find the downfall of our nations and kingdoms. And, and a lot of this treachery as well was due to um, this internationalism in, in trade or the seeking of international relations. Yeah, that's what the Roman Empire was after, wasn't it? It was getting tribute from us. They weren't happy with just trade. They wanted tax and tribute, didn't they? Well, well absolutely. And, and, and that's, um, that, that's evident in, in Caesar's invasion of Britain and then the turn that Mandelbrachius made to the Romans for help, which helped to enable Caesar, right? But when um, he, he felt that he was unrightly put out of his kingdom, he turned to the Romans for help. And, and when you do that, you betray your own nation. Even if you yourself have gotten a bad deal, you still become a traitor to your nation. Oh, yeah, he, he, was a, he, he was a traitor. That was the second invasion. I mean, this, this is, again, this is the thing that the British people don't realize. They think that the Romans came over and fought a war and, and that they conquered us, but they didn't. 
And the first first time that Julius Caesar came was in 55 BC. And you've got Tacitus writing in 60 AD, and he writes that London was an important center for business and merchandise. This was before Julius Caesar arrived, so it was, it was an important center already. And we've got um, Welsh records, or ancient British records, that say that it was around 72 BC, Fluid, this King Fluid, built a wall around London. It was eight feet thick at the base. It closed an area that was 324 acres. It was the largest city in Britain and possibly all of Western Europe. And this was outside of the Roman Empire. It was outside the uh, the, the known world. Whereas all the um, invasions and wars that the Romans had before then, that all sort of been on Europe, on the continent, and in the known world, whereas Britain was out was outside of it. We were separate to uh, the, the Roman Empire. And he thought that he would be able to just, just come over and, and take these these barbarians because we weren't training for war every day like the Romans were. And yet he was he was turned around and, and sent back. I mean, Caswellon was our king at the time. And uh, just to bear out the, the truth of the fact that uh, of what Tacitus says, that it was a centre for merchandise and business, they found um, wine amphorae, Roman wine amphorae in Dorset that go back to that time, in, um, in mounds that go back to that time. So that shows that there was uh, trade with Rome before Rome invaded. And uh, he arrived at Kent. He had 80 transport ships in two legions. And a, and a further 18 transports were unable to land. And the weather was bad. He had high tides. And he never actually got any further than the beach. And, it, and he ended up having to scavenge for food. This was the, the, the state that he got to. And this was the first time that Caesar was seeing chariots being used for war. Because we had war chariots. The same, similar to the ones that the Persians had. And we must have had been since, since the time of uh, uh, Brutus in Troy. And since we had these chariots, it's, it's recorded that we had these chariots, we also recorded as having roads going the length and breadth of the country. And they weren't um, uh, you know, muddy tracks. So they were proper stone-packed roads that you could have horse-drawn chariots on. And, and also they had scythes coming out from the wheels. They had these big spikes coming out from the wheels that would chop people up. And so he's actually lost his sword in that battle. And that sword is on the coat of arms for the city of London. Because this, this was a triumphant thing. We had his sword. We had his Caesar's sword. Not only had we, had we sent him packing, but we'd, all, we'd also stolen his sword from him. So our king was, was triumphant. Caswell was triumphant. And Caesar was forced to withdraw back to Gaul with his tail between his legs. And obviously the propagandists in Rome tried to uh, claim that, it, that it, it, it wasn't quite as bad as it was. And they didn't you know, say outright that he'd lost. But that's, that's what had happened. He had lost. And a year later, he thought he would try again. Let, so let, that was the two things that you said in historical perspective real quick before you proceed, if, if you don't mind. But first is that before he invaded Britain, Caesar had defeated many of the tribes of the Gauls and had conquered all of Gaul in just a couple of short years. And at the same time, fortified the Rhineland, the, the Rhine River, so that Germanic tribes could no longer freely pass into Gaul in the west by crossing the Rhine. So Caesar had pulled a, um, quite a great feat there 
but his opposition in Britain was much more formidable than it had been against the Gauls, even though the Gauls were perceived to be more powerful and more numerous. Now, on another note, the chariot thing, a lot of people won't understand why Caesar never saw chariots used in war. By the time of Julius Caesar, um, chariots had fallen out of use in war in, in the Mediterranean countries, and that's because they had a constant supply of horses along the trade routes from Asia, and, and the Asian horses were much larger and more powerful, where in the early centuries of European history, chariots were used for warfare because um, horses simply were too small and could not support the weight of an armed man. In Caesar's time, that had, chariots had fallen out of use in warfare because the horses were much longer, larger and more powerful than ones being imported and, and could support a man. So cavalry was being used rather than the, the, the ancient traditional chariots, except in Britain where the chariots persisted. The chariots of, of Roman times were only used in, 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 of Caesar's time, I should say, were only used for ceremonial purposes and for sport. That's all I want to say. Now, I think the, uh, the actual chariots that the British had, I think they had the, they were a sort of different shape, and the, I think the axle might have been placed in a different position, so they were able to sort of run up and down the thing with, with, with a bow and arrow, and they, as well as having the, the size on, on the sides of them. I seem to remember reading about that somewhere, that they, they were a different shape, they had some, some kind of technology that uh, he wasn't aware of. And the, and the Gauls themselves, they were also descended from Brutus, from the same... Um, same group, same same Trojans, like all the Brit, all the Brit Britons and and the Gauls that were descended from the from the same people originally. Looking at the history, and the what, what people of some Gauls. That that's true of some. Some yeah. That that's the Belgae. The Belgae, you, you know, the um, first inhabitants of Ireland are, are called Firbolg. And, and that's actually from a form of the same word, Belgae. And they are the earliest uh, of the tribes of what later became known as Gaul. A lot of the Gallic tribes were um, related to the, the, the Trojans and the Phoenicians, ostensibly, and, and to the other, um, what we would consider Gepetite tribes. H however, um, the Galatahi, who are the, the Germanic tribes who migrated across land from Asia, they had been invading Gaul for um, several hundred years before the time of Caesar. So, so it's a mixture of, of the, the older and the newer Aryan tribes. Yeah, I think in the island, the Gaelic, they have a slightly different language. It's always amazed me that you've got two different nations. You've got the the uh, tribes that lived in, in the mainland of Britain and in England and Wales and parts of Scotland, and then you've got uh, different tribes with a with a different language and a and a different culture. And you know we got on quite fine with them. They're, you know we didn't have wars with Ireland back then, but we did, but there was two different 
cultures, two different civilizations, as it were, progressing along, um, that were quite different to one another, yet the same. And yet there wasn't any trouble with them. The trouble came later between um, uh, England and Ireland. Hell yeah. So after this, after that, a year later, he obviously thought, you know, he must have been smarting from this first expedition when he got sent back, where he thought he was going to have a pushover. So he got in touch with Arthur Rui, who was the Duke of Kent. And he's also um, known as Mandu Britius, which is the Roman name for him. And he did a deal with Caesar that uh, once Caesar got to the mainland, that he would switch sides and his people would, would switch sides. And uh, his tribe was the Trinovantes, which was the London tribe because the London or New Troy that Brutus founded, the people that lived there were called the Trinovantes. And these Trinovantes, they've been there all this, all this time. Now, if you look at back at uh, the history books or the books on race that were written um, you know, probably about 100 years ago now, they will, they will say that the, the, the tribes in Britain that were, or they live in that area of Britain, like the, like the north of Britain, the, the Midlands in Britain, in London, they're still, in the main, they're still the same people that have been there for over a thousand years. Thousand, you know, right back, going right back to this time. They didn't move around that much. They might have um, intermixed a bit with, with some of the Saxons, but the Saxons married amongst their own, lived in that area. So you would, the, the Trinovantes, the, the London tribes, would have been the same right the way up until the 50s when that Windrush ship came to Britain and offloaded the first uh, Jamaicans and then Africans and Pakis. And, and now London is, is only 40% white. Do you think these people have been living there for thousands of years? They, they'd, um, they, they were traitors at this point, but later on they, they, uh, they were back on the side of Britain and they fought on the side of Britain and fought against the Romans. And now they're, they're being replaced. So go on, Bill. No, no go on, go on. That, that's, um, Julius Caesar gets into several pages in, in the Gallic War about the, the, the dispute between Cassivellaunus and, and Mandubracius, and, and um, Mandubracius actually goes to Caesar and cuts a deal with him and betrays his own countrymen in, in order to advance his own interests at home. I, I don't know if you want to hear about all the details, but it, it's, I'm, I'm just verifying what you were saying. Oh yeah, no, that's um, Caswellon was is the Welsh name for the king at that the time, and he was descended from Clwyd, who put the walls up around London, the son of Beli, and so was Mandubricius Arvarui. He was the son of Clwyd, the son of Beli, and and he didn't like the fact that Caswellon had been had been put on the throne. And so obviously he went to Caesar. He thought Caesar would. Um, put him back on the throne and uh, he arranged to pay the tribute to Caesar and to um, turn his back on his own countrymen and fight against his own countrymen. But Caesar didn't succeed. The second invasion, he failed again. He didn't get any, any further than Kent. But it, he, at this time, this is the time that Caesar writes about the Britons wearing skins and being painted blue. But he never got any further than the north bank of the Thames. So he's not going to, you know, he's not going to know what 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 the Britons were like. 
And apparently he sees his report saying that they wore skins and were painted blue. That contradicts Strabo's description of the Britons. Do you know anything about that, Bill? Strabo's description? Strabo's, well, Strabo did say that they painted themselves blue and, and, and things like that. I don't have his um, description actually off of the top of my head in, in any great length, but Strabo does say of... Um, Strabo does say of the British that at the present, however, some of the chieftains there, meaning in Britain, and this is after the defeat of Julius Caesar, after procuring the friendship of Caesar Augustus by sending embassies and paying court to him, in other words, there were certain British chieftains that were courting the Romans, have not only dedicated offerings in the Capitolium, but have also managed to make the whole of the island virtually Roman property. So after the time of Julius Caesar, according to Strabo, there were some British kings which were, um, or British chieftains, which were so much currying the favor of Rome that, that they were practically turning their homeland over to the disposal of the Romans, according to Strabo. And, and this is geography in Book 4, in, in Chapter 5. And he says, further, they submit so easily to heavy duties, both on the exports from there to Celtica and on the imports from Celtica. These later are ivory chains and necklaces and amber gems and glass vessels and other petty wares of that sort. That there is no need of garrisoning the island, meaning Britain, for one legion, it's <laughs> they wouldn't let him, they wouldn't let him garrison the islands. <laughs> half, well, this is right. This is the Roman perspective, right? And some cavalry, yeah. and of course, it's going to be politically slanted in favor of Rome, because there were actually two. Augustus Caesar had actually planned to invade Britain several times, and was always had to put those plans on the back burner because of trouble elsewhere in the empire. And, and Strabo continues by saying that um, for one legion at the least that some cavalry would be required in order to carry off the tribute from them. And the expense of the army would offset the tribute money. In fact, the duties must necessarily be lessened if the tribute is imposed, and at the same time, dangers be encountered if force applied. So what Strabo was really saying there is that the Romans were benefiting greatly from British trade and, and from the duties on imports and exports from out of Gaul, on, on the Gallic side. So... so Strabo's using that as an excuse as to why the Romans had not yet conquered Britain because they were benefiting more greatly from the trade with Britain. And, and what that says in between the lines is that Britain at that time must have been an advanced society which was able to produce not only goods for export, but to make enough money from that to import goods that were considered luxuries, ivory chains and beads and things like that, 
and glassware at that time are luxuries. So the British are importing luxuries from the Roman Empire and in the meantime producing enough um, to provide in, in exchange back in order to be able to afford those luxuries. So Britain was not a backwards nation. And, and Strabo isn't ad admitting to their level of civilization directly, but he certainly is indirectly with his remarks on British trade and the royalties that were being, that the, the, the customs duties that were being paid. Yeah, I, I, I always imagine that, that, uh, that the amber would have come from the Baltic as well. So you know, the uh, Baltic tribes would have been, that's where the amber would have come from, so they would have been up to quite a high standard as well, you know, creating stuff out of, out of amber and, and using that. All was the trading point, what was the, the, the trading station for it? Uh, what I was thinking of, the report, is there one of Strabo where he talk, talks about a, a druid that, that visits Athens or is that uh, something else? Because there's a report of the druid that wore trousers and wore plaid and spoke Greek as, as good as the Greeks and he had um, an, an arrow of Apollo, which they think was possibly a magnetic compass. Because I see, because that report of, of the British druid, that contradicts Caesar's idea of them um, wearing skins and painting themselves blue. They, they had played that, that, that they wore um, and, and cloth rather than just bare animal skins, which is like uh, Caesar's report. And, I, and if, if they're making stuff for trade like that and with ivory brooches and, and what have you, then they, I don't think they're likely to be just wearing animal skins and like the average idea that you have when you think of a caveman. And uh, one, of the, one of the other bits is, is between these first and second invasions, the Trinovantes this London tribe, they had dug spikes into the bed of the Thames, which made it impossible for Caesar's warships to come up the Thames. This is why he never made it past the north bank of the Thames. And these spikes that they dug in, into it, they're still there. It's still got traces of these spikes that, that were dug in there. So they appear to be putting metal spikes into, um, into the riverbank to, to stop his warships from, from using them. So he, he, was, he, he failed in this instance as well. And uh, the, the Roman propaganda, again, is, is tries to make out that it wasn't really a, a failure, but it, because they say that the, the British just stopped fighting them. They, they didn't need to fight them. They, they, they had burned all the, all the crops so that uh, Caesar couldn't get any food. They couldn't get his ships up the Thames with, with food in them, so they stuck without food. So he, so he had to go back over, over to Gaul. And uh, so again, you got, and when he went back to when he went back to Gaul, it, um, in the report it says they arranged to get tribute and they took hostages with them. But there's no record of the amount of tribute that it was, and there's no British records of the British people actually paying any tribute. And uh, the so-called hostages that he took with him would have been Arvarui, this, this traitor. Uh, and uh, there are other records of him uh, ending up in Africa. And uh, it was his his great granddaughter. She turns out to be another one of the, of the great traitors. So you've you got the two different sides of the propaganda. You've got Rome saying, well, we've got hostages and tribute. And you've got Britain saying, well, we, know, you, we haven't got any record of paying you any tribute, and you, you're quite welcome to take the traitor back with you, which is pretty much what happened. And then uh, two kings after Caslon, uh, Cunabellin, or Cunabellinus, he visited Rome and was, and was received by Emperor Augustus. 
and which, which ties in with what you were saying there, Bill, about the um, trade that, that they had between them. And proof of that, that there was a brooch of Augustus that was found in um, kind of Bellinus's tomb or his, his burial mound, and that was discovered in 1922. So you had a brooch of Augustus because he was he was in Rome being educated. This, this king um, uh, Cunovellin or Cunobellinus is, is the other name that he goes under, the Roman name. So there, there was basically, there was trade between the two countries then, and, and Britain was um, in touch with the rest of Europe, as it, as it always had been, but it was still outside the Roman Empire. It wasn't a vassal of Rome. It, it wasn't um, forced to pay a certain amount of money to them. It wasn't forced to obey Roman laws or to have uh, Roman outposts. And it was a hundred years after that that there was the next invasion came. This was uh, after the, um, Christ's resurrection, the advent of Christianity. This is um, would have been a few years after Joseph of Arimathea first got to Britain. Is it AD 43? And you got the Emperor Claudius that invades, and this time he brings 40,000 troops and a force of elephants with him, which had never been seen before. Elephants and the, the smell of the elephants. Um, is what really sort of startles the, the horses and uh, the, the British troops. And there was no warning letters this time. But apparently, the, the, the other two times, there had been warning letters, there had been correspondence between the British kings and Caesar, saying, you know, we want tribute, and the British kings saying, well, we're not paying you it. And uh, so they knew that um, Caesar was coming. And this time, he had one force went for London, and, and the other force went for the Dorset coast and unfortunately by that time there were there were political divisions between the tribes. Some of them wanted to fight against them, some of them didn't. You had Cogidumnus, a Belgic king, and he entered a tactical alliance with them. And that was on the south coast of England, in Sussex, it's the, the Chichester area where you've got um, a Roman palace that's been found there. And that's also where was found the stone that, that, that proves that um, Rufus Trudensis was there, Rufus that married uh, Claudia, that's, whose brother was Linus, who was the first bishop of Rome. Because it's about this time that you get um, the, the kingly line, the, the Pendragon of Britain, who was King Caradoc, gets taken off to... Rome, where his family uh, were put in the Palatium Britannicum, which is where Paul stayed, which was the first church in Rome. It's a British church. But this is when you get the next, um, the next traitor appears. And this time, it was Caradoc, who was the Pendragon. The, the, in the times of war, the British people would nominate a Pendragon. Out, out of all their kings, there would be one king to be the war warlord, basically, and he was called the Pendragon. And Caradoc was, was the Pendragon, and he was in trouble, and he appealed to Queen Cartis Mandua of the Brigantes for help, and she was the great-great-granddaughter of Arvarui, this um, the traitor that we were talking about before that went back with, with Caesar. And she was divorced, and she was relying on the Romans to actually keep her on the throne because she'd divorced her husband. And uh, while Caradoc was asleep, she had him sapped in irons and betrayed him to Rome. And he was taken to Rome. He was paraded through, through the streets of Rome. We've got lo lots of records of this talking about this. And he made this famous speech, this fantastic speech, 
where um, he said that the, the Romans had, had killed all their enemies, and um, but they've never actually set one free. They're known for being warlords, but they've never ever been known for their mercy. And if they wish to go down in history as being civilized, then they have to be mercy to somebody. And uh, his speech won them over, and uh, they did show him mercy because he was such a, a valiant fighter and had put up such a valiant fight. So he was he, he was then put um, as a hostage. He had to stay in Rome for seven years. And uh, that's where you get the Pelagium Britannicum. And uh, <clears throat> his, you get St. Paul staying there. And uh, his son becomes Linus, the first bishop of Rome. And that's in the Apostolic Constitutions. A lot of people say, well, where, does, where do you get this from? Because the Roman Catholic Church is different. But um, Cardinal Baronius from the Roman Catholic Church, who researched all of this, I think it was the 15th or 16th century, and, and he came out with this and confirmed this. That's in the Apostolic Constitutions, the Epistola ad Corinthios. Um, and there's a, a quote from Irenaeus that I've got here that, that um, confirms it. It says, The apostles, having founded and built the church at Rome, committed its supervision to Linus. This is the Linus mentioned by Paul in his epistle to Timothy. Linus was the son of, of Caractacus, uh, Caradoc. And his father was, was Bran. His father stepped down and he became the Archdruid and Caractacus became the Pendragon. After this, you, you then got this line of Caractacus or Caradoc. And he's, he was from the Silurus or the Asluic, um clan, which was, which was South, South Wales. And it's from his line that you get uh, King Lucius later on that uh, announced that the nation was was Christian and that there would, there would be Christian people from then on. So you've got around this family, around this royal family, you've then got um, saints and you've then got uh, various priests of the church and you've got churches that are being built by them. And, uh, but around about uh, AD... 60, you've got the Iceni, this other group that have been allied with Rome, and uh, their king, King Prasetagus, he died. And he was in debt to Sarah something, I think his name is. I can't call it off the top of my head, but he was in debt to one of these, to one of these Romans when he died because they had lent him a lot of money at usury, and this is the first record that we've got of um, a usurious loan in, in Britain, usury being used was by this, this Roman and uh, he died and up to that point, the way that the British people had had things with Rome is they'd been allowed to keep their laws and one of their laws was that you couldn't take away a man's heritage you couldn't take his home, you couldn't take the public buildings, if the king had borrowed money from somebody then you had to take the money from the king, you couldn't take it from the public from the public people, you had to take it from him as an individual and this king Prasutagus died and uh, the uh, Roman who had sold him or lent this money to him, he steamed in there with, with the troops and they plundered the place and, and set fire to it. They flogged his widow, whose widow was Boudicca or Boadicea, the famous queen, and they raped uh, her two daughters. And of course, this set the, the whole country up in arms against the Romans. They raised Camelodunum to the ground, they, they destroyed Verulamium, they burnt down London, they massacred the entire infantry. And this was just for two women, two girls being raped. And, and 
you know, the British people just razed half the country to the ground, setting it on fire, massacring all the, all these Romans. And you compare that to today, where you've got 1,400 white schoolgirls raped by Pakis. That's one schoolgirl raped for every four Pakis living in Rotherham. And people, you've got you've got a, it's with you've got a few protests. That's it. So gone, Bill. People. That there's 1,400 girls raped in Rotherham, and, and people take to the streets, handfuls of people, with cardboard signs. Now, that's the, that, that's the, the difference in, in um, when, when the daughters of Boudicca were raped, that there was a, um, a, a, a massive uprising against the Romans. And, and many people dead on both sides, where now the British are totally, absolutely docile. Here, take my daughter, rape her. Uh, I'm going to walk around with a sign if you do, and, and protest. That's crazy. That they should be slaughtering tankies in the streets is, is what should be going on. Well, that's what happened here with the Romans. They say they, they massacred an entire infantry. There was a big battle at Gopolini in North Wales, and a, a commander of the Second Legion he committed suicide. Um, Tacitus admits to over seventy thousand deaths of the Romans, and then uh, you've got uh, Boudicca herself. She got surrounded, and rather than be taken by by the enemy, she committed suicide. So it's the same, uh, when Hitler committed suicide, when he was surrounded by his enemies, he was just, he was taking a noble way out that, is, that had been taken by great war leaders throughout history. That's, that's what happened. The, the great leader falls on his sword. When all else fails, when you, when you fought right down to, you know, everything that you have, you don't allow yourself to be captured by the enemy. The noble way out is, is to commit, is to commit Harry Carey's a, and falling on the sword. And that's what um, Boudicca did. It was death before dishonor. And she had been dishonored. Her, her daughters had been dishonored. They'd been raped by the Romans. So she'd rather die than, than give in to the Romans. So this, this war continued. This, this war had gone on for decades. You know, there'd, there'd been some, some of the tribes that came to the an arrangement with the Romans, and as the Romans allowed them to keep their laws, and they, and they paid in a few tax revenues. But the other ones, like the Silurians, the Caradoc family, who, who, was, who had been in Rome, they continued fighting, uh, they carried on fighting with them. And uh, Suetonius was sacked by Nero, and he sent Polycletus in the end to bring the wars to an end by, by negotiation. And they were brought to an end by negotiation, and the negotiation they said that Rome couldn't bring any of their laws in, basically. The British kings had to be permitted to rule in their own lands, according to their own laws. Because the laws in Britain went, went back to, uh, I think it was 6th century BC, we had Marmutius, the first laws. And one of those laws he said, one of those laws of his was that you could never take away a man's children from a man. There were three things you couldn't take away, and that was the tools of his trade, um, his children, and his home. And nowadays, they, they will take away all three of those from you. And they, they said that you cannot ever take a man's children away from him because to do that is to unman a man. And, and that law we've had for thousands of years, and they've changed that just recently. And now the women go to the, the, the children go to the women, and we have all these single mothers. 
they have all these divorces. Whereas before, for thousands of years, it, the children always went to the man. So this, this, you know, the, these kings back then, they stood up for our laws and said, we're not changing them. And you contrast that with today, with the European Union, all the sovereignty has gone to the European Union, and they're the ones that now make the laws of Britain. You know, you've got this real amazing history to be proud of, this, this noble history of fighting against these people and keeping these laws and keeping our civilization and our liberties of our people, and we're just giving them all up through being infiltrated by, by these Jews. Um, well, let me say a few things here, here from Tacitus. And, and sure. The, the sellout of um, Britain to the Romans what was more or less a, a gradual process. It didn't re really all happen all at once, because even though Julius Caesar had, had, gotten, um, had gotten some of the leaders of the, of the Tribunates to, to sell out to him, he... He, Trino Bantes, I'm sorry, he, he had failed and, and could not conquer Britain. Tacitus doesn't really go into details as to um, the military campaigns of Claudius in Britain, which later subdued most of the British later on in, 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 um, in the first century AD. But the a um, hundred years after Caesar, right? That the the accounts he gives are, are telling. Tacitus says that um, in Britain, the situation inherited by the imperial governor Publius Scapula were chaotic. Convinced that a new commander with an unfamiliar army and with winter begun would not fight them. Hostile tribes had broken violently into the Roman province. Now, now this is about 47, 48 AD. And, and this tells us, first, that, that Britain had a province, that the Romans had a province in Britain, meaning an area of land that they marked off as their conquered territory. But there were many hostile tribes outside of it. So the Roman province in Britain is relatively small compared to the size of the island itself. Now, he doesn't, Tacitus never explained how this came to be. I don't have any other sources handy. I don't know if Suetonius or, or Plutarch actually fill in the blanks. But speaking in this manner, where these hostile tribes break into the Roman province, and, and a revolt is set off across the province and, and out from the outside. Tacitus goes on to say that the first to revolt against this were the Iceni. And then he said, we had not defeated this powerful tribe in battle since they had voluntarily become our allies. So we see that the British tribe of the Iceni, which is the tribe of Boudicca, that they had voluntarily become Roman allies and never faced the Romans in battle. They never resisted the Romans in the time of Claudius, according to Tacitus, until the revolt, which happened after the Roman province was established. And then they're going to rise up against Rome. Now, 
Concerning uh, concerning Boudica, her husband had already been dealing with, and and he had been uh, subservient to to and and a payer of tribute and a forfeiter of sovereignty to the Romans as well. And he had left his kingdom, allegedly left his kingdom to Rome in, in, in his will, and, and he seems to have also cooperated with the Romans. And, and that resulted in what happened to Boudicca and her daughters. I'm not saying it was right, and I'm not saying that the uprising, because of it, was bad. It, it was actually an act of bravery that we need in Britain today, as we've mentioned, in relation to the Rotherham problem. But but um, that these are also basically acts of treachery against the British people. What well, when the British kings, for their own well-being or for their own gain are dealing with the powers on the continent. And, and we see the same pattern going on today, where the British politicians are, are currying and dealing with the powers on the continent, and the British people are being overrun as a result and enslaved as a result. Now, I think there's um, there's another quote as well, isn't there, that says that uh, Christianity had reached the parts that the Romans were just completely unable to get to in Britain in that time. I'm, I'm paraphrasing there. But there there's, a, there's another quote that, that, that uh, where the Romans weren't able to get to, the people were all Christian there. So the, the, the Christian tribes were the, were the ones that, that were free, and uh, the tribes that allied themselves with, with Rome uh, they were the ones that got treated like like the Iceni did after the king died, and he trusted Nero to sort sort his will out for him. Well, <laughs> in another source, I don't have it in in um in Texas. Yeah, well, the, the, um, I, I couldn't tell you exactly where that that uh, that source came from. That he he left it to him to sort his will out. That uh, came up in um, the book, the last book that I was reading. And I can, I can go in later on as to where some of the, the, these Welsh histories come from, because a lot of this comes from uh, the Welsh history that's just been, been suppressed. But then after this, you get to the second and the third centuries, and you've got Rome standing armies on the Rhine are being fed by Britain. And the, there's a, it likens the, the, British, um, the British and the Roman people of Rome in... Uh, Britain, like Britain was in India with the British Empire. There really wasn't very many Romans actually in Britain. It was British people. And they looked on the Roman ways and uh, learned some things from the Roman ways, but there wasn't any actual Roman colonization. There was very little Roman colonization. By the third century, the Roman legion was made up almost entirely of um, British people. And uh, this is why later on, once Constantine was able to go and take Rome, and, and the people he had with him were, were British. It was the British people that he had that made up this, um, made up this army. But one of, the, one of the things that the, the Romans had been doing at this, at this second time, they started marrying in to the British royalty, because Rome themselves got rid of their royals 
Um, they were also called the Tarquins, and the, and the Tarquins were expelled for, for rape, so they'd lost their own royal line, and they knew that the British people were descended from Brutus. They knew that the royal line in Britain was directly descended from Brutus, well, from well, Troy. Caesar also made that claim. And, and very yeah, it's very bizarre his claim, isn't it? Because because he says because he thought because they were descended from Brutus, Britain would be a pushover. Doesn't make sense. Virgil in the Athenian had supported Caesar's claim. I just thought I'd mention that. Yeah, he did. This this is it, and that they they could thought they could get legitimacy for themselves to. To when they came to wanting to be the emperor, if they could come from um, an, an illustrious bloodline, they would stand a much higher chance of um, becoming emperor or, or becoming Caesar. So well, later on, you got lots of emperors with the same names as the kings, the British kings. So the Trojan princes were seen throughout history as legitimate royalty, and even as the the, the ancient Greek historians write that the um, neighboring nations, those neighboring nations to Troy, had taken their own kings from Trojan princes, including the um, the Colicians and the Carians of Miletus, and and the um, French dynasties. I think it may have been the Merovingians. There were French dynasties in the Middle Ages that were claiming descent from Trojan princes simply so that they could legitimize their claims to nobility. The Trojan princes were seen throughout um, European history as being legitimate royalty. And of course, those, and those Trojan princes go back to Calcol and Dada and uh, Forget the names of the rest of them. They, they go back to the son of Judah, so yes. that, that royalty line. That's where the original claim comes from, isn't it? Yes, Judah is the son of Judah. And the Pharaoh's line stayed at, at, over in um, Palestine, and the the Zara line became the kingly lines of Europe. Right. That's where the claim comes from. A lot of the time you get people who say, well, how did they get these kings? You know, why couldn't I be a king? Anybody could be a king. It was directly due to this bloodline, going back to this covenant, going back to the Bible, straight from the Bible. Again, there's another link that um, the Bible is not a, a, a foreign book by foreign people at all. It's our history. It was the legitimacy for, uh, for all our monarchies. It may become a bit distorted now. It's not quite how it, how it how it was back then. Yeah, after this, you've, you've then um, you've got Rome sends Septimus Severus in from Africa. Again, he was married to Marcia, who was may have been descended from Lucius, this King Lucius who Christianized Britain. It is said that he had no heirs, or he did have heirs, but he didn't have any sons. So he had daughters. And this Septimus Severus was married to Marcia and Septimus Severus may well have been descended again from this Arvarui, this Mandubricius. So when Septimus Severus was sent to Britain, he wasn't just um, claiming that, that he was going to be king and Rome had put him there to be in charge. He may well have had a legitimate claim to actually being king. 
Uh, and then you've got more troubles between who, who Romans put in there with um, with the kings that, that the British people have put in there. And eventually you get to King Cole, and uh, King Cole's bloodline goes back to King Belly, and he was the father of Empress Helen, who Constantius Chlorus married. Okay, another one of the Roman. Um, uh, was it? It's not the emperors. What the Roman proconsuls, consulates, Roman generals that they sent to Britain? What was uh, the exact name, Bill? I've forgotten. Well, well, it could be a procurator or a proconsul, depending on the rank, depending on whether or not the person was of senatorial rank. Let, the, let, let me, before we go on to Constantine, let me just um, compare two attitudes or. or um, or illustrate two attitudes that Tacitus had, real quick. When um, Cartamandua sold out Caractacus, Tacitus said of Heractacus, Caractacus, that he himself sought sanctuary with Cartamandua, queen of the Brigantes, but the defeated have no refuge. He was arrested and handed over to the conquerors. So there, Tacitus illustrates the the, um, the idea that it's righteous to sell your people out to the power of Rome. That that's the righteous thing to do, and, and that's the that the attitude he expresses there. And and then he has the same. Um, arrogant attitude in, in relation to um, in, in, in relation to Boudicca and I'm, I'm sorry I kind of lost it and, and I'm looking for it but, but he said that Prasutagus king of the Iceni that's the husband of Boudicca right after a life of long and renowned prosperity had made the emperor cohere with his own two daughters. Prosopagus hoped by this submissiveness to preserve his kingdom and household from attack, but it turned out otherwise. And, and Tacitus is basically using that claim over Prosopagus's will to justify what the Romans had done to the Iceni and, and to the queen and her daughters. That, that's, uh, it's just the arrogance of, of Rome. Today we see the same arrogance in, in, the, um, in, in the United Nations where um, these migrants, so-called migrants, that these savages leaving Africa, that their boats are sinking and, and they're drowning in the Mediterranean. And the EU, the, the United Nations is demanding that the countries of the European Union save them and bring them to Europe. It, it's... It, it's the, the same arrogance that Tacitus exhibited for the Romans, the United Nations and the European Union consistently exhibit today. That's all I wanted to say. You were talking about Constantine. I'm sorry. And King, yeah. King Cole, Constantine's father-in-law, is actually the subject of the nursery rhyme. Old King Cole is a merry old soul. Yeah, no, that's the one merry old soul was he. Uh, his, uh, his daughter was Empress Helen, who Constantius Chlorus married, another Roman Roman guy, and, and uh, their son was, was Constantine. Constantius Chlorus was uh, 
emperor, at the time you had Diocletian and the, and the Diocletian persecutions of, of Christians, and uh, their son was Constantine, uh, Constantine, and when once his father died, he was crowned king, he was king of Britain, and then he was also made emperor. And of course he was Christian, because he was a British king from the same line of Christian kings. And that's why Rome was, uh, Christianity was legalized in Rome. It was because the, the king had been brought up a Christian by his mother, the Empress Helen. Now you've got people since then that have tried to cloud this over, cloud over um, the pedigree of the Empress Helen and say that she was a barmaid in um uh, in France or, or somewhere like that, and yet we've got places in Wales. We've got um, Constantinople, this town in Wales called Constantinople. We've got all these various other villages that are named after a procession of the cross, because this Empress Helen, she went to Jerusalem uh, to search out the the true cross. She brought back this piece of the true cross, whether it was or not, we don't know, but um, she thought it was the true cross, and she brought it around. Wales in a big procession, and they named these places after her. So we've got her in the kin lists, and we've got these place names named after her, and yet since then the Roman Catholic Church has tried to obscure that. And they were trying to obscure it at the time as well, because they wanted to obscure his his succession. Because apparently they put um, all his sons to death, but one of his children was put in the care of a Spaniard, Severus Aelius, and uh, Magnus Maximus was his son, and his son was King Arthur, or Andragathius. He was the first King Arthur, because people think King Arthur was um, his legendary or just folklore, because he couldn't possibly have done all the things he did. But these two authors, these secular researchers, Alan Wilson and Baron Blackett, they think that there was two King Arthurs, basically. There, there was King Arthur I and King Arthur II. And the, the evidence for it is very compelling. Um, again, it's, it's to do with place names that, that are still there on the maps. It's to do with um, the histories that have been written about it. And instead of getting Welsh people to translate the history, they've, they've got English people to translate the history. And they've put down daft things that the translation couldn't possibly mean. And also, they, they wanted to put the Welsh down as well at the time. So they, they distorted things. But you had this King Arthur one. Uh, he was also known as Guy of Warwick. He was also known as, as the King of Greece. Uh, he killed Gratian. He fought with his father, uh, Magnus Maximus. He made a bid for the emperor, but, but was beheaded. Arthur escaped back to back to Britain after a fight with Theodosius. And uh, he was he was buried in this, uh, I forget what it's called, Graveyard of the Kings or something it's called. And they've got all these burial mounds there. And it's somewhere in the north. It's not at Glastonbury. It's somewhere in the north. And uh, the name of the place there is named after these kings that are there, and they found a stone there with um, Arthur, son of Maximus, written on the stone. But then you've got he he's got a few a few uh, nephews and, and and sons, descendants. So you've got a couple more generations to go, and then you get to Vortigern and the Saxons, which is the third great uh, treason that that we had. And uh, this this guy, I mean, I, I don't know if people have heard of Vortigern, but uh, he killed his cousin, who was King Constance, and put himself on the throne. He had two sons, Uther and Ambrosius. But, um, I, I think uh, Uther married a daughter of Constantine, because their son was, was the next King Arthur. 
that the two sons, Uther and Ambrosius, they were saved from the same fate. You see that? The sons of, sons of his, sorry, I got mistaken there. Vortigern killed his cousin, King Constance, and King Constance's two sons, Ambrosius, Uther was the father of the second um, <coughs> uh, King Arthur. But they were saved from that fate, and they were taken off to um, Normandy, Brittany, and they stayed there. And, and this Vortigern put, put the crown on his own head, Made, his, made himself king, and before that he'd served under Valentinian with Hengist and Horsa, who were the famous Anglo-Saxons. Now this Vortigern was a really nasty sort. He was excommunicated for incest with his own daughter by St. Germanus, and he actually encouraged the Picts to invade, so he set up like a sort of false flag incident got the Picts to invade, and that was his excuse to invite Hengist and, and Horsa into Britain, which was the Anglo-Saxons. And so the Anglo-Saxons come into Britain, they defeat the Picts um, at Stamford, near Lincoln. They have a big celebratory feast, and uh, Hengist wheels out his daughter, Rowena, his beautiful daughter, and uh, Vortigern falls for her. He gets drunk, and he falls for this, this daughter of... of uh, Hengist says, "What you know? What will you give me for your daughter?" He says, "Well, I want Kent." So he gives away Kent, the entire county of Kent, which is where all these niggers are pouring out from the Channel Tunnel at the moment. It's all um, at a standstill. I think it's, things have started moving today, but this is where this this happened. They gave the, the Kent to the Saxons, and uh, the king of Kent was just was left without a county. He, he was most distressed by this. So that they deposed Vortigern, got rid of him, and the Saxons were ordered to leave. And uh, Vortigern's son, Vortimer, he was made king. They had a big war with the Saxons because they wouldn't leave. Horse was killed. Hengist was captured. And then Rowan, Rowena, this, this um, daughter that married Vortigern, she poisons Vortimer. So his son's been killed by his, by, by his stepmother. And Vortigern then returns to the throne and invites Hengist back over again. But he says, this time you can only bring 500 men. And Hengist turns up with 300 ships. So you've got the whole Saxon fleet that, that now turns up. So the, the British people are thinking, well, what are we going to do about this? We're going to have to come to some arrangement. Um, you know, we might actually have to give him Kent and we'll have a peace conference. So they set up to have a, have a peace conference with, with the Saxons under a white flag and unbeknown to them, the Saxons have arranged that as soon as they hear these words, let us now speak of friendship and love, they're to pull their knives out and stab all the nobles. So you've got all the princes and the priests and the nobles there having this feast. And at this watchword, the knives come out and 480 of these nobles were killed. And that was called the Night of the Long Knives. And that was why there was a... The, there was an anti-Saxon feeling after that, because that you know this was that was just total treachery, a real treasonous thing to do. And after that, the the, the watchword that that went around Britain was "Death to the man that trusts the stranger," and this is what people would say. And I don't know what happened to that. I really don't, because if people were people should be saying that now, "Death to the man that trusts the stranger." But it was all thanks to this traitor, who's known as the Black Traitor, Vortigern. All the nobles got killed, and England got taken over, basically. And, and the Britons that had been here for, you know, on Britain for 
1500 years, had a civilization, had all these universities um, that we've talked about before. And it was a great center of learning and civilization, and that was just just destroyed. And they were all, all moved into into Wales. Vortigern eventually was besieged and, and burned. And uh, Hengist was tried and executed as an assassin for this. And uh, but eventually, what could you do when you've got all, all the all the kings that have been uh, killed? Well, Ambrosius and Uther come back from Amorica, and Uther's son is is Arthur. And King Arthur manages to kick the Saxons out. And you've got a 30-year gap in the Anglo-Saxon chronicle at this point, because the Anglo-Saxons obviously didn't really want to write about this, the fact that they were defeated. And he manages to actually kick them out. And uh, he uh, goes off into Europe and sets up a, a, a bit of another empire over there during those 30 years. And there was peace. And this is why Arthur is known throughout Europe and, and throughout the world, because he was this... this um, this great king, he made peace with the with the Scots. He went to Scotland, and the Scots said, "Look, we're Christians, the same as you. Don't kill us. You know, you can't kill your Christian brothers." So he didn't. And this was the first instance of, of Christianity preventing wars between the tribes, because you, once you had a Christian brother, you couldn't really go to war against him. So this this was the beginning of like the the sort of uniting of Britain, really. But uh, then there was a calamity, there was a, a comet and a pestilence, and uh, most of the, a lot of the Britons moved over to Brittany until this pestilence had finished. It was like a plague, uh, the crops couldn't grow. This is in the Arthurian folklore, um, as the wasteland and with the grail, you need to find the grail to heal the wasteland. This is the, the traces of that, and the myths that surround it. But uh, eventually the Saxons came back in again, and then you get... Uh, uh, Augustine and uh, the Britons won't pay obeisance to the Pope so Augustine says well if you're not going to obey our Pope you're not going to obey our laws I'm going to set the Saxons on you so again the, the Saxons trash things and then uh, it's looking really bad for, for the British and the Anglo-Saxons have, have destroyed most things you get to the point with um, King uh, Alfred Alfred the Great now this is the first king that people nowadays remember now, when you talk about great British kings or great people from British history, they say Alfred the Great, and they won't remember him many more. They won't remember Caradoc or Caswellon or Belly or, or Constantine or any of these great kings. They just know Alfred the Great. And Alfred the Great is lamenting what, what has happened to his kingdom. It's all destroyed. There's nothing, there's nothing there. Okay, he's had problems with the Vikings, but nobody knew how to read. There was, there was six people, I think it was, in the entire kingdom that knew how to read. So he had to send to the Britons, so the, the Welsh in Wales, to um, Bishop Usher, to get him to come and educate his nobles. And then a great thing of uh, age of learning begins. And this is when British people are taught that um, the first schools in Britain was when uh, King Alfred set up these schools to educate people. And he built towns and he uh, invented uh, a clock, which was a candle in a jam jar. Uh, he was a very inventive chap. And he translated the Bible into, um, into the Anglo-Saxon language. Uh, he used to have people that would, that would read to him all day long. So this was before the age of podcasts, when you could listen to people talking, uh, like a radio, talk radio. He actually had people reading out the classics and reading these books out aloud to him all the time while he was doing whatever it was he was doing. So he could con continually learn. Yeah, he was a, a really good king, and you, again, you got trouble from the, from the Vikings, 
you've got uh, another uh, bit of atrocious behaviour by the Saxons, which uh, I think caused King Canute to come over, or King Canute's father came over. And then after that, you've got the Normans, which come in, which I think um, you know a bit more about this than me, Bill, the, the treachery that was involved with the Normans once, once they came over. I know they destroyed a lot of the country. You say that there was some, some treachery involved there as well. Well, well, there certainly was treachery involved, but but it, it it's the, the Norman invasion. A, a lot of people um, envision that as being cut and dried. That that William, quote unquote, the conqueror, landed at Hastings on, and 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 met the English on uh, on a level playing field and and defeated them. Nothing is further from the truth. William the Conqueror really didn't conquer anything. Um, by his good fortune, England was handed to him. And, and he, the, the treachery comes when, when, when he basically um, overturns the nobility of England and the, the clergy, and, and then replaces, brings in the Jews. He brought the Jews into England, taxed the land, and, and replaced the nobility and clergy with his own. And, and um, that's the real treachery. When, when, um, it, it's a complicated story how he became king, and, and he did become king by treacherous means also, that but, but they were a little more underhanded. It's a complicated story, and I'm only going to take it back as far as um, Hardy Canute. Hardy Canute was the last of Canute's sons. Canute, of course, was the Danish king who invaded England and took the, took the crown from the Anglo-Saxons. Hardy Canute died, and, and um, at that point, the crowns of Denmark and England were separated because the Anglo-Saxons decided that they were going to put Edward the Confessor on the throne, who, who was the son of Ethelred and a descendant of the old Saxon kings from before the invasions of the Danes. And, and during the time of Edward, Edward the Confessor, he was threatened almost immediately by Magnus, the king of Norway, who had conquered the Danes and claimed the realms formerly held by Canute. Now, Magnus was not in a position to invade England himself because he was facing competition at home, actually from somebody named Sven. And, and this essentially led... This situation, the claim of Magnus, eventually led to the um, later invasion by his successor, Harold Hardrada, who, who was defeated and killed by Harold II, the last Saxon king. In the meantime, or, or actually before that, William, the Duke of Normandy, had visited Edward the Confessor while he was king with a great number of his knights, and he was showered with gifts and kindness. And, and Sharon Turner wrote that whether he was invited or obeying his own sagacious policy, 
William, the reigning Duke of Normandy, came to England with a large company of his nobles and knights at this period, meaning the time of Edward the Confessor. And he was received with great honor and courtesy by Edward, who entertained him for some time, conducted him to his cities and royal castles, and loaded him with presents when he returned. This is sort of like um, what, what, when... The, the kings of Jerusalem had invited the Babylonians in to check everything out, right? This visit was of importance to William. It introduced him to the knowledge of many of the English chiefs and made his name familiar to the people. It began the formation of that interest which so powerfully assisted him in afterwards acquiring the, the crown. But Inc. Q. writes, and... and Turner is quoting one of the older chroniclers. But N.Q. declares that no mention was made of his succession to the crown at this visit, nor had he then any hope of it. Yet it may have excited William's desire to enjoy such a crown and must have made a lively impression on his memory. Now, Turner goes on to explain how William the Conqueror was related to Edward the Confessor by marriage, and that it was from this visit that William later claimed that he had a promise of succession from Edward, which, of course, could never be um, substantiated from original documents. According to Sharon Turner, Edward before he died, had intended to appoint his cousin Edward, the son of Edmund Ironside, as the successor to his crown. This prince had continued in Hungary since Canute had sought his life. There are all sorts of indications in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles that at that time all these different European dukes and kings and royalty, that they were all in leagues with each other and did each other favors, and this is one of them, and, and made deals with each other. It happened all the time, even all the way back then, in, in, in the 10th century. It's 11th century. It, it's been going on all the way back in the first century with Caesar and, and the British chieftains that were going to curry Augustus's favor in Rome, right? Everybody, people um, with, with without a lot of actual reading of ancient history don't see that they imagine these kingdoms to be separate entities that because they didn't have telephones and, and things like that and, and highways and automobiles, that they were very remote from each other and disassociated. That's hardly true. That there was, even though communications were a lot slower back then, there were a lot of communications between all the courts and, and capital cities and, and tribal chieftains of Europe amongst each other, no matter the distance. Here we have a, a, an Anglo-Saxon prince who seeks refuge in, in Hungary and gains it in the court at Hungary. So that, that's just a side note. Called from, from thence, meaning from Hungary, by Edward the Confessor, he, his cousin Edward, came to England in 1057, but died soon after his arrival. 
The death of this prince confirmed in two men the hopes of attaining the Anglo-Saxon scepter, Harold and the William Duke of Normandy. After this event, looked forward to the splendid prize with equal ardor. So there's two competitors for the, for the English throne upon the death of Edward the Confessor, and William of Normandy is one of them. He does have a claim, no matter how tenuous. Harold had sworn to William to assist him in ascending the throne of England, but afterwards pleaded that his oaths had been extorted by irresistible force, as William, having had him in his power, compelled him to swear. So we see that Harold, in order to be that friendly and that close to William, must have had a long-standing relationship with him. They must have been well acquainted with each other, that they must have kept time in, in the same castles or on the same fields in order to get into this, in order for Harold to later admit getting into this predicament. And he did. It's in the documentation that Sharon Turner had, had cited for this section of his book. This charge thus repelled. The rivals were in other respects on a level. Both claimed, neither one could substantiate the claim, though, both claimed from Edward a gift or testamentary appointment in his favor. Both had been in Edward's friendship, and the family of Harold, as well as the family of William, had been connubially allied to him. They were married to his sisters, his aunts, whoever. There were intermarriages here between all of these noble families. There is perhaps no great event in our annals in which the truth is more difficult to be elicited than in the transaction between Harold and William in the lifetime of Edward, meaning what William claimed and what Harold had recanted. He didn't deny that he would help William. He, he, he recanted it on the grounds that his pledge was usurped from him by force somehow. This is the problem with trying to summarize the events at a time, that all of these dukes and princes were interrelated through blood or marriage. To unwind the relationships and the politics behind the events, you have to keep going back in time. And, and you, you never get to the root of it, right? Because of this, William of Normandy asserted that he had a legitimate claim to the throne, but so did Harold, and so did Magnus, the king of Norway. Now, the claim to the English throne by Magnus led to the failed invasion of Harold Hardrada after Harold, the, the last Saxon king, becomes the king of England. It also led, the, for the same reasons, to the successful invasion of William of Normandy. After defeating Harold Hardrada, Harold Hardrada actually invaded England first after Harold, the Saxon king, came to the throne. And, and that was um, fortuitous because William of Normandy was attempting to cross the Channel and had hundreds of ships to do it in. And, and um, Sharon Turner actually provides a catalog of those ships 
and, and who provided them. I, I couldn't get it translated in time for this program because it's in Latin, and, and um, that that's a, that would take me probably an hour. But, but um, Harold Hardrada invaded first, and Turner explains that Harold, too, had, had rushed after defeating Harold Hardrada, and, and he defeated him handily. He defeated the king of Nor Norway and his invading armies, um, very soundly, and it cost Harold Hardrada his life. That Turner explains that Harold, the Saxon king, rushed to meet um, William of Normandy during the um, battle with Nor the Norwegians. William of Normandy managed to um, cross the channel, finally, after like a three-month delay and land in um, the south of England. Harold II rushed to meet the Norman, but he was unprepared after the battle with the Norwegians, with Harold Hardrada. Turner says that Harold had looked upon William as his devoted prey, and instead of collecting all his means of defense and multiplying these by the wisdom of their application, he flew to London as if he had only to combat in order to conquer. So he beat the, the king of Norway, and evidently he was, um, he was very overconfident that he would do the same to William of Normandy. And Schoener says that I'm sorry, Sharon Turner says that after, the, after defeating the Norwegians, that Harold the Saxon king had lost many of his bravest warriors. And then, by an ill-timed covetousness, he disgusted the surviving warriors because he had monopolized the plunder for himself. And when he marched to London against William the Conqueror, a large part of his army had deserted him, and only those who served on pay and as mercenaries remained with him. So Harold had nearly defeated William with only a small part of his army. Sharon Turner goes on to explain that the English were not defeated in this battle. He says, uh, and, and this is a little descriptive, the sun was departing from the western horizon, and the victory was still undecided. This is after the first day of heavy fighting. When Harold lived and fought, his valorous, valorous countrymen were invincible, but an order of the dukes, by occasioning his fate, gained the splendid laurel to harass the hinderanks of that firm mass which he could not by his front attack and destroy. He directed his archers not to shoot horizontally at the English, but to discharge their arrows vigorously upwards into the sky. These fell with fatal effect on the more distant troops. The random shafts descended like impetuous hail, and one of them pierced the gallant Harold in the eye. A furious charge of the Norman horse increased the disorder, which the king's wound must have occasioned. His pain disabled him, and he was mortally wounded. 
As the evening closed, one of the combatants had the brutality to strike into his thigh after he was dead, for which William, which with noble, nobler feelings, disgraced him on the field. Panic scattered the English on their leader's death. The Normans vigorously pursued, though the broken ground and frequent ditches checked their ardor. Encouraged by observing this, a part of the fugitives, meaning the English, rallied, and indignant at the prospect of surrendering their country to foreigners, they fought to renew the combat. William ordered the Count Eustace and his soldiers to attack. The Count exposed the peril and advised a retreat. He was at this instant vehemently struck in his neck and his face was covered with his blood. The duke, undismayed, led on his men to the conflict. Some of the noblest Normans fell, but he completed his hard-earned victory. The body of Harold was found near his two brothers and was carried to the Norman camp. William escaped unheard, but slaughter of his Normans had been great. His victory was splendid, but if Harold had not fallen, and this this was by the chance um, strike of a hail of arrows that this supposedly happened, but if if Harold had not fallen, it would have contributed very little to gain the crown of England. It was the death of Harold which gave William the scepter. The force of England was unconquered. The English were not defeated at Hastings. And it was only a small portion of Harold the Saxon's armies. A small portion of it only had been exerted. And if Harold had survived, or any other heir, at all competent to the crisis, William would have earned no more from his victory than the privilege of fighting another battle with diminished strength. And surely the English would have prevailed, because Harold was only fighting William of Normandy with a small portion of his forces. And Turner says, the fleet of the Anglo-Saxons was afterwards ready to cut off further succor, if such could have been raised for him from Normandy. And it is probable that if by the fall of Harold, England had not suddenly been left without a chief, the Battle of Hastings would have been to William but a scene of brilliant glory speedily followed by melancholy catastrophe. In other words, if it wasn't for the sheer luck of Harold, the Saxon king, and his brothers dying in a hail of arrows, William of Normandy would have failed in his invasion. But because Harold and his two brothers died, the English noblemen who were left on the field decided to hand the throne to William of Normandy because his claim was at least as legitimate as Harold's claim and because he also was a nobleman related by marriage to Edward the Confessor who had no issue and no appointed heir because his cousin Edward, the son of Edmund Ironside, had died before he could succeed to the throne. So that is how 
William of Normandy had gained the English throne, and it was basically through treachery because his claim to it cannot be substantiated and because he he simply ascended by luck on the battlefield in a battle that he did not gain a decisive victory in. So when he takes over the throne, he he manages to um, consolidate his power, and he he's able to replace the English nobility and the clergy to bring the Jews into England and to start divide, dividing up and and taxing the land because of his um, continental holdings and his continental allegiances, William of Normandy was not committed to the Anglo-Saxons. He was not committed to the English or the British people by any means. He was never a conqueror, but he nevertheless conquered by intrigue after he was handed the throne by the English noblemen. And in this endeavor, he had the blessings of the emperor, Henry IV, of Germany, and he also had the blessings of the Pope in his invasion of England when he began this endeavor, and he had assurances. The King of France really didn't want one of his dukes to become the King of England. The King of France was against that idea, but he didn't do anything about it because... Well, first it would mean that the king of England, the new king of England, has vast holdings in France, which is against French interests, or at least against his interests. But he couldn't do anything about it, because William of Normandy had a pledge of assurance from the German king, who was the Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV, that that his holdings his dukedom and his holdings in Normandy would be safe while he was away in England fighting for the throne there. He had that assurance from Henry IV. So he he just basically had a carte blanche free ticket to go take over England from Harold and and the Anglo-Saxons. So there was on many fronts. So it's pretty awful um, the way that uh, the, the Saxons were, were treated then. They, they weren't really well liked. I see today you get, I mean, we, we class white people as Anglo-Saxon. Most white people are called Anglo-Saxon. In America, you have your, your white Anglo-Saxon establishment. Um, but Anglo-Saxon today is made up of Norman, Saxon, Anglo-Saxon, Cymric, Britons, British. You know, and we're all called Anglo-Saxon, but but then it, it was different. I mean, these people that had invaded Britain, uh, they weren't seen as being the same people as the Normans. I mean, I've got a, a, a quote here, which um, this is from the British Cymru, or Britons of Cambria, outlines of their history and institutions from the earliest to the present times. This is primary source edition by R.W. Morgan, who's a Welsh researcher. He says, with, with few exceptions, the Saxon proprietors were everywhere deprived of their estates and reduced to villainage, 
the feudal system, or the system of the victorious lord and the conquered serf, was established in all its rigour as the constitution of England, in a convention of all the barons and the clergy at Winchester, A.D. 1088. The Norman, or Franco-Latin, was constituted the language of the government, the courts of law, and the public offices. The Saxon town was proscribed. A military survey of the kingdom, and of every fife in it, held by the conqueror's sword, was made out. This work, the most complete and humiliating confession ever imposed upon a land of its total subjugation, was called by the unhappy Saxons, Doomsday Book, the book of their doom, wherein, as, quote, little mercy was shown to their race, as there will be to sinners in the great day, close quote. The curfew bell told every night at dusk signalled the whole serfdom in every town and beneath the shadows of every castle to extinguish all fire and lights in their houses and to retire to the cold, dark and hopeless couch of the slave. No Saxon was permitted to dream of mingling his blood with a Norman. He could have but one name, the Norman possessed two, the latter designating his fife and thereby marking him as one of the privileged class. For 300 years, no Saxon name occupies any but a servile position in English history, and as late as the time of Richard II, the Norman chroniclers could convey to Norman ears no acuter sense of the degradations to which this monarch was exposed than that his Cheshire archers dared to accost him in English. Extensive districts were cleared of their Saxon population, parked into royal and baronial forests and stocked with deer. Mutilation or death was the penalty inflicted on any Saxon found with a weapon in these hunting grounds of his conquerors. We may well feel overwhelmed with astonishment that a nation naturally so brave as the Saxon should submit to groan for centuries in a state of such Egyptian shame and bondage. And uh, then it goes on to talk about how the, the Normans weren't quite so bad to the Welsh. Uh, this author believes that the, the Normans were originally uh, northern Cymric people. Basically, he traces them back to being the same people as, as the Cymri anyway. We know that the, the, the Cymri, the Normans, the Anglo-Saxons, the they're all from the same original stock. They're just um, cultural differences that, that have changed over the years. So for deserting their, their king and for going over to... Um, William, the Norman, this was their, this was their reward. So again, it was, uh, it was treachery. They'd been sold out by, uh, by um, these aristocrats right the way through, through history. They also got great heroes uh, like uh, Caractacus, Caslon, Constantine, Arthur. Uh, Alfred the Great was a great hero in, in fending off the, the Danes and, and the Danish invasions, Viking invasions. So we have had um, some great kings, some really fantastic kings, as well as uh, these traitor kings. I can't think of one prime minister or one president that's been any good. You know, they've all been bad. At least with the kings, you, you stood a chance of, of getting a good one. And uh, I think that when you look at the hist when we look at the history like this, the kings sort of represent the people. And they used to say that if you had a, a king that was into gambling and drinking, all the people in the kingdom would be gambling and drinking because it was the king that set the moral standards. Uh, and that went on for centuries. It was the king that set the standards that everybody else had to live up to. And the king was responsible for guarding the, the, the morals of, of, of the nation as well. 
it was after this time that the, that the Normans came in, that, as you say, that, that was when the Jews came in, that's when the banking came in. And you get, nowadays, you get, in England, you get um, an anti-Norman thing because of these Normans coming in. In Wales, you get an anti-Saxon thing because of these Saxons coming in. But uh, the British people, uh, they are all, all British. I mean, they come from these various different tribes, but they're all white. And they all originally come from the same place. They're all uh, Nordic white people as well. You know, they say that the, the Welsh are Mediterranean, but uh, you don't look any diff really any different to the to the uh, to the English. You might have a higher percentage of, of darker coloured hair, if anything. But and that's about it. I don't see many differences between them. But this this history up, up until this sort of Norman point. The, the history has been distorted in order to put across that we were savages up until then, and then we were uh, civilized by the Normans, we were civilized by the Romans. It was a natural fact we had a civilization, it was destroyed by the Saxons, uh, and it was the Romans destroyed parts of it as well. But uh, the British people do have a history that they can be proud of, and um, even it's just a question of finding it. I don't know if you want to add anything to that, um, Bill, or whether I could give it, explain a little bit about how the how the history got distorted. Well, well, the history is distorted in in part simply because of of, of the prejudices uh, of the chroniclers and and the historians, and and they're often personal prejudices r rather than national prejudices. Sharon Turner had a um, glowing review of, of the Normans and, and the results of the Norman invasion by the um, by William and, and what that led to. He didn't really talk about the subsequent suppression of the Anglo-Saxons at all. Maybe he just had no love for them because of their own um, barbaric ways, which they, they, they were barbaric at times. They treated the Britons rather barbarically and the Welsh. But the um, Saxon England also had its high points too, especially under um, King Alfred and King Edward. So it, it had its high points and, and reached um, high levels of, of culture and, and began to, under Christianity, appreciate the need for culture. And, and the same thing was happening in Germany at the same time. The Saxons of Germany were forcibly converted by Charlemagne because they had been giving the Franks such a hard time and the rest of their kindred races such a hard time for, for many centuries, looting and pillaging. And, and um, they were forcibly converted to Christianity, but within 200 years, we had um, the, the pinnacle of medieval Germany, I believe, was with Otto I, the Saxon king. In, in, in the same century as, um, I believe, in the same century as William of Normandy and, and the, the fall of the Saxon kings in England. So, so uh, I mean, the Saxon people, uh, even though they were probably among the last holdouts of Europe to be Christianized, once they were Christianized, they were as, um, that they became as cultured as any the rest. 
to me, it, it's um, William of Normandy, that there was a certain amount of treachery in Britain because the um, many of the nobles and, and the armies which Harold, the Saxon king, had used against the Norwegians had deserted him, in part due, according to Sharon Turner, to his own greed, but they had still deserted him. And their desertion of their king cost them their own estates in in the decades to follow. So it it's um it wasn't that that it didn't work out good for them to desert their king. But um there's other things in the background which I'm not sure are quite reachable and, and that is that there's no doubt historically that William of Normandy allowed the Jews into England and use them as tax collectors and oppressors of the English people and the British people. And he also um, had close ties and support with those same continental powers, the Holy Roman Emperor and the Pope, that, that the early chieftain, traitor chieftains of um, the British people had sought out as well. So, so we see that it's always treachery that that has cost England her position. It's always treachery. And it's the same treachery for the same reasons by basically the same class or classes. We have Jewish merchants and, and English nobility that we see happening today in the selling out of England. And this time, it's not to fellow whites. This time, it's to everything but whites. So, so this is the point to which what we have um, degenerated in our ability to sell out our own people. You, know, you think of the way we, we repel these, these various successive waves of, uh, of invaders. And they, we, we push them out and we, we talk today, the, the, the school children are taught today that Britain is a nation of immigrants, same as America is taught, America is a nation of immigrants, America is a nation of, of pioneers and, and Britain was not a nation of immigrants, we, we fought, you know, we, we gave blood and lives to, to repel uh, enemy forces that, that came over here and the ones that uh, stayed were ones that were the same same blood as us that originally came from the from the same people, and the, the history it, that's what the history is. It, it's successive peoples trying to take the country over, and and our history of um, fighting them and, and and pushing them back. And what you've got today is this this stealth invasion. That's again that's been been sold out by our leaders, but instead of it just being one leader like Arthur Rui selling out to uh, Caesar because he wanted to be put on the throne. We got all of them, all, all of the uh, leaders, everyone in the parliament has sold us out. And uh, the royalty is, is not doing anything. Royalty's had its powers to do anything taken away from them anyway, even if they did want to do something. And the royalty itself is um, it's like it's becoming in, inbred with these Jews. Uh, it, it's, I think looking back at, at history, should you know, learning about history, I think we should instill a sense of um, pride in, in our people and a, and a sense of, of belonging. That the British people to think that um, 
You know, somebody could can just have a piece of paper saying they're British. Some packy can have a piece of paper saying he's British, and it means he's he's British. Now, if you if you know your history, even if you're not into the racial side of things, if you know your history and what what your country's been through, what your nation has been through to make it what it is, you know, you, you, can't, you can't have somebody just calling themselves British because they've got a passport that says that. You know, it, it it comes from the bloodline and the history that the nation has gone through, that the country's gone through to to make it what it is today. You can't teach people, teach these packies to repeat what king it was at what time or you know, and then say, oh, well, you're a citizen now. You've passed the citizenship test. That's what they do. You know, you've got to have a sense of belonging and a sense of, of being a continuation from, from the past right the way through till today. Going right the way through back to back to these British kings, going right the way back to Brutus. And that history, going back to Brutus, that was taught right up till the 18th century. And then they, they stopped teaching it. Um, and, and they said that it, oh, it must be all, all folklore and we were savages back then. In Queen Victoria's um, reign in 1866, they started reforming the history more along Anglo-Saxon lines, funnily enough, praising the Romans and um, denigrating the British. And, uh, they started calling uh, old ruins uh, Roman, and uh, even calling the Saxon ruins Norman. And all the churches were put forward to not, not existing until after 600 AD, because that was when Augustine came. The, uh, the whole history of Britain being the first Christian nation started to be hidden, and that was confirmed at all these councils. Four or five various church councils all over all over the world confirmed the fact that Britain was the first nation to proclaim itself um, a Christian, and and the church was started by Joseph of, of Arimathea. Here, he had Geoffrey of Monmouth book, um, his history book, that, that was the first one that they started denigrating. And they said it must, be, it must be a spoof. And the guy that said that it was a spoof, he was after the job that Geoffrey of Monmouth had. That was, that was William of Marsby. He insulted it. He hated the Welsh. He was turned down for the job of Bishop of, of Flandaff. So he decided to spite Geoffrey's memory and the Welsh, and he called it a spoof. And yet the same history that Geoffrey of Monmouth wrote is the same history that, that Gildas uh, told. And it's uh, what Nennius said as well. You've got all these various um, histories that they've, they've silenced. But, and a lot of this, the Welsh historical records from 1100 onwards, they were taken to the Tower of London, along with the princes that they held there. So they had all the records, all the family trees, um, going back hundreds of years. And in 1300 AD, a monk called Isgalan burned the majority of them. He set fire to them. So this would have been a Roman Catholic monk that set fire to them. In 1361, they prohibited all writing in Wales by Richard II. And as soon as they started printing, 1483, they banned printing in Wales. In 1694, the printing press was, was, was finally allowed in Wales, not up until 1694. It had all these records from the oldest people living in these islands that had these records, that originally they were oral records that the Druids had. When the Druids became Christianized, they wrote them down. We've got Talliers in the Bard stuff. But these people kept these manuscripts. They kept their family trees. They, they had to hide them. And they couldn't speak in, the, in their own language. But that was how feared it was, that, that people would, would know their history. And Cromwell, he expelled 330 out of 
520 members of the Welsh Church just out of one area, St. David's and Sandaf alone. And finally, finally this, this act was, was repealed and they were allowed um, to have printing presses and books. In, in 1846, another act of parliament, they forbade the teaching of Welsh in schools entirely. And uh, anyone that was, that was caught speaking Welsh had a, had a hangman's noose put around their neck. This is in school. And at the end of the day, whoever had this uh, hangman's knot around their neck would get a cane. This is how much they wanted to suppress the, the Welsh nation. It was called the treachery of the blue books because all the reports were kept in uh, blue folders. But uh, eventually, this is why the Welsh fought so much to be able to speak their own language and why in Wales you have road signs in English and in Welsh because they kept they kept kept on and on and on until they're allowed to to speak their their Welsh language and this is this is why the, the Welsh manuscripts have such terrible translations because it was English people that translated them and they they changed parts of it whereas in right up until 1920 the the people in Wales were still being taught that King Arthur was a local king and he wasn't from Somerset. And there were, there were still school books that were actually teaching that. And the Welsh people, they, had, they know their knowledge of, of their kings. It did go right way back. There was a chap in the 1800s, Owen James, William Owen Pugh, and Edward Williams, who called himself Yolo Morganic. And he translated loads of Welsh. He was a Welshman, and he collected all these manuscripts from these people that had hidden all these manuscripts. And he wrote them all down, and, and it's called Mervernian or Mervernian archaeology. And they smeared him, and they slandered him, and they said he was a, he must be an, an opium addict. And uh, 200,000 pages of his manuscripts are still lying there in the, in the library. But everything that he wrote down is borne out by the stones and, and place names. And uh, a lot of the, the history that these guys that I'm relying on for most of what, or a lot of what I've been talking about today, Alan Wilson, Baron, Baron Blackett, they use his work and they, they say that uh, you know his work is correct. And he's been slandered because they don't want this history to know. They don't want it to be known that um, Britain was, was the, the first place that Christianity began and that this is where the church began and that the Holy Kingdom began in Britain. They don't want it known because of the because uh, the Roman Catholic Church's claim to that. And I think they also don't want it known because it, it points to uh, to our heritage and, it, and it, it points to the Jews not being the people that they say they are as well. It, it all goes back to that. It, uh, it's interesting to see that the way they have persecuted the Welsh and yet they've managed to keep their language and they speak it now and they managed to keep their manuscripts. That's, um, and that's where a lot of this history comes from. And this well, sort of Chap- proves it when you look around it. Chapman Turner in his History, history of the Anglo-Saxons, and this is available in um, PDF format and, and other similar formats, from archive.org. The, the version I have that, that's actually a um, it's a mimeographed reproduction from Sacred Truth Ministries. The version I have was published in two volumes in Philadelphia in 1841 by Carrie and Hart. There's another version just as old published 
that, that's available online in three volumes, and and it can be found at archive.org. He he has a um, about a hundred and twenty pages in an appendix in, in the back of my two volume edition that is dedicated to the uh, vindicating the genuineness of the ancient British poems. What which of the poetry, the literature that you're talking about right now? We should probably do a follow-up to this program because we didn't really get into it today and, and talk about the current treachery of the English politicians in, in, um, in the new flood of immigration and the new takeover of England. And this time, it, it's not white, so it can't be right. Yeah, that was the big thing. It was, it was always white invaders before. But just, just before we go, I'll just say to people, um, this book, um, The Holy Kingdom, says it's by Adrian Gilbert, co-author with Alan Wilson and Baron Blackett, The Quest for the Real King Arthur. It's called The Holy Kingdom. I picked up a second-hand copy for one pence on Amazon. And I think you can get a second-hand copy for a dollar uh, on Amazon in America. So if anyone's interested, they can pick the book up for pretty much just the price of postage. And it's, and it's a secular book, but it confirms you know, everything that we talk about in Christian identity. And most of it's fairly accurate. I think uh, they picked up one bit in there, which um, uh, one questionable reference, which uh, we talked about the other day, Bill. But apart from that, um, it's... Uh, it's a good book. I recommend it. The Holy Kingdom, Adrian Gilbert, it says it's by, but it's all about Alan Wilson and Baron Blackett and their research. Well, Sven, thank you for being here. Thank you, Bill. And we'll see Thanks, you in two weeks. Talk about the current immigration problem, perhaps. Okay. Praise Yahweh. <laughs>